All right, would everybody have a seat, please? If you've got a Bible or a device where you're looking on your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We've been going through a study uh, called Breakthrough, where we're asking God through the Holy Spirit to break through and to teach us some things that He was teaching to the churches in Revelation. Um, Revelation was written by a, a, one of my favorite apostles. His name was John. Thank you for laughing. Only one person laughed. Okay. But um, John wrote this on the isle, uh, island of Patmos. And uh, it's Jesus speaking to the churches. Seven churches that are in what we call modern-day Turkey. He's writing to the churches at those times, but not only is he writing to those churches, those seven different churches at that time, he's also writing these are seven messages to the church as a whole. So that's why we're asking God to speak to us through this today. And um, we're going to start off by looking at a video. So uh, watch this video, and I'll uh, I'll explain it as we go. January 12, 2007, a man emerged from the Washington, D.C. metro station, positioned himself near a trash can. The young man wore a t-shirt, jeans, and a baseball cap. He removed a violin from a small case and then placed the open case in front of him, facing the pedestrian traffic. Then he began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on a Friday, the middle of the morning rush hour. For the next 43 minutes, the man performed six classical pieces as nearly 1,100 people passed by. Would any of these people stop to enjoy the music? The fiddler standing against the bare wall outside the metro wasn't your normal street performer. His name was Joshua Bell, one of the best classical musicians in the world. He was a musical prodigy at age four and is now an acclaimed virtuoso. He packs out concert halls around the world, and the music Bell played that day was far from ordinary. Over 43 minutes, Bell played masterpieces that have endured for centuries, some of the most elegant music ever written, and he played the beautiful music on one of the most valuable violins ever made, a Stradivarius which was handcrafted in 1713 and is worth $3.5 million. On that Friday back in 2007, over a thousand people had a front row free ticket to a beautiful concert by one of the world's most famous musicians, but only if they had eyes to see and the ears to hear. 
And yet only a handful of people in the metro that morning stopped to listen and enjoy Bell's glorious music. We can often fail to see what's most beautiful, to hear the music that's most elegant, even if it's right in front of our eyes. Because guys, we're a distracted people. We have distractions that we tolerate and they ultimately pry us away from focusing on the important things, especially knowing the Lord. And uh, over time, these distractions, and a lot of them are good, but they're distractions. But we build these distractions into idols. God is a jealous God, meaning He wants our faithfulness to Him and not faithfulness to these idols that we erect. Today we're going to be talking about the church at Thyatira. Here's a couple pictures of the ruins that are, exist today in Thyatira. Thyatira has a, was a city that had many trade guilds. A trade guild is kind of like a labor union. It had trade guilds that surrounded uh, textiles, uh, bronze, making armor, pottery, leather, and even slaves. And these trade guilds' influence uh, on their culture was significant. You see, they monthly sponsored what they call common meals where everybody who was in the trade guild would come. And over time, this, this, this was not just a feast. It would evolve or devolve into uh, idol worship and sexual immorality. And for a Thyatiran Christian, if I was a Christian living in Thyatira and I was part of a guild, failure to participate in these feasts and the subsequent sexual immorality that followed put me at significant economic risk. I might be considered an outcast, and people wouldn't do business with me. So it was a major deal for them to not go to these. And that's where the angel, as we see here, is speaking to the church at Thyatira. Now I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, you may ask, you may be new here, and you say, why do we stand? Why do we stand to read God's Word? Well, think about the times in your life when you're in a public place and someone calls you to stand. It's usually a very important event. When a, when a, a bride-to-be is walking down the aisle, we stand, right? When um, you have to go into a court and give a wit witness to evidence, you stand. And it's just a way to remind ourselves that God is getting ready to speak. And we need to listen to His Word. So hear now the Word of the Lord. We're in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the mind and heart and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, 
To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. Father God, as we come before you now, we admit that we have wayward hearts. We ask you now to come through your Spirit and speak. We need to hear from you. Remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us of your goodness to us. That our hearts may be stirred to be obedient to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please have a seat. Keep your Bibles open if you would. Notice here, right out of the gate, these are the words of the Son of God. This is the only time in Revelation that phrase actually comes, the Son of God. So we know Jesus is talking to us. Okay? But also notice what it says about Him. Whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. These eyes are like blazing fire because He sees all. He judges all. And his feet are like burnished bronze. That reminds us of Revelation 19 where it says, He will tread the winepress of the fury of His wrath of God Almighty. Both of these ideas depict, first of all, God's holiness. And because He's holy, He judges us. And He will remove impurity in due time from the world as we know it. Now this idea of the bronze would resonate with the Thyatirans. They had a bronze guild. They understood this language. This is a metaphor that spoke to them. So we need to talk to ourselves today and say, what, what impurities, what things am I allowing in my life that distract me? What are my spiritual distractions? And um, as I went through this message, it's actually a very simple one. Uh, you're probably not going to hear anything that just overwhelms you. But it's stuff we need to be reminded of. And the first thing, and this, before I give you this point, I was raised in such a way that for some reason I never could lie to my mom if she was looking at me. Not saying my mom had eyes that blazed, but she'd say, did you do that? And I, I would do this. No, ma'am. She said, look at me. And I'd look at her. Once I looked at her, I couldn't lie. I don't know what it was. She had this power over me. Um, but if you get this first point, and if you can instill this in your kids, this is something that will not only help you, but will just curb you from a lot of bad things and from a lot of good things that you need to do. But here it is. Very simple. Jesus sees all you do. Did you get that? Jesus sees all you do. If, uh, if I take Sarah, my friend here, out for coffee and I said, hey Sarah, I'm going to buy okay, she's going to look and think, oh, that's so nice of John to buy me coffee. But you know what? Jesus sees my heart. I could be saying, I want to buy Sarah coffee because I love Sarah and she's a friend of mine. But likewise, I could be saying, I want to buy Sarah coffee because if I do, she'll think nice of me. And I really want her to think nice of me. God sees all of that. He doesn't just see our actions. He sees our motives. 
the reasons why we do what we do. Well, look at what Jesus says here. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So Jesus sees all in their life just like He does. This is what He sees in you and I. He sees and commends our very motives. I know your deeds. He commends them for their love. They were commended for the way they loved one another. But He also commends them for their faithfulness. The true Christians in Thyatira were dependable. They were reliable. They were consistent. You could count on these folks. They were faithful. But Jesus also sees and commends their results. Their love and faith resulted in service. Service grows out of love. And faith grows into perseverance. This idea of perseverance means to dwell under, to bear up under. It's the idea of I've got stuff on my back, but I'm going to hold up and stick it out. Patient endurance, steadfastfulness. The word I like, and it's a word we don't use much, it's forbearance. We don't talk like that anymore, do we? You know, I don't go to my wife and say, Jackie, please forbear with me. But to bear up under something for a long time, that's what he's talking about. So Jesus sees their motives, He sees their results, but He also commends them for their growth. He says, you're doing now more than you did at first. So their loving service has become more consistent and their faithful perseverance is growing stronger. Just like these people, Jesus sees your actions. He sees your thoughts. He even sees your motives. And He judges them all justly. He sees them for what they are. But we need to be aware of the distractions. I mean, you never want to get to the point where you say to yourself, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm going to church most of the time. I I read my Bible whenever I can, you know, but I'm doing all right. I I think I'll just kind of relax a little bit and kind of coast here with Jesus because I'm doing okay, right? I don't really need Him that much right now. Life's good. I've had those thoughts before. But here's the thing. Um, Serving Jesus is kind of like jumping into a fast-moving stream. If I jump into a uh, fast-moving, a better example would be a river, and I'm not fighting against the current, that current takes me away. I need to pursue, to strive after Christ every single day. Because if not, I just get swept away. Second Peter mentions this here. He's talking about remaining faithful in godliness. And look what he says. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing... See that striving there? They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I have to ask you, make every effort. Are you making every effort? Think about your life. We have opportunities for you to grow spiritually, opportunities to serve both in the church and outside the church. We have opportunities to give and use your gifts. Are you making every effort? Are you taking advantage of the things that are available for you? 
that's the first thing you need to see, that Jesus sees all that we do. But the other thing is, number two, Jesus judges your distracted heart. Our hearts are going everywhere. Verse 20 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate. The word tolerate there means to let it pass. To take no notice of. I'm sorry, it means to take notice of. You take notice of it, but then no action follows. It's like seeing a problem. Seeing a kid disobey and you go, yeah, maybe they'll grow out of it. Maybe the problem will go away. And we all know that every problem, if you ignore it long enough, it goes away, right? No. It gets worse. And it's more of a problem to deal with later down, down the road. So this Jezebel mentioned here was probably an actual woman, but it also harkens back to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. The Jezebel of the Old Testament was uh, married to a king of Israel called Ahab, all right? And she was a worshiper of Baal, a fertility deity for the Canaanites. And it actually says in Scripture that she led the nation astray. Could you imagine leading a whole nation to worship an idol, to worship a false god? What judgment she must sit under. Well, in the same way, this Jezebel has seduced others to engage in two things he mentions here. Sexual immorality. And let me just say this. We all, and I include myself in that, we all are sexually immoral people. All of us. And don't think just because you never run around your husband or wife, you're not sexually immoral. We're all sexually immoral. Jesus, Scripture says, is the bridegroom, and we, His church, are the bride. He is a jealous lover who hates our unfaithfulness. See, we're all sexually immoral. To put it another way, we're all sluts. We're all prostitutes. We're all skanks. We're all hoes or whatever other vile word you want to put in there. And some of you right now, here's the frustrating thing, some of you right now may be offended that the pastor got up and used those words. And you ought to be, but you ought to be more offended that you have sin in your life. Am I offended more from my sin than I am the words people use? That gets me because, you know, sometimes my sin, I, I love my sin. It's kind of a comfort to me. I don't hate it like I need to hate it. So he says there's sexual immorality. And, and those are harsh words, guys. I realize that's strong language. But this isn't my language. We read some scripture today that talked about our whoring. And that's what God says. And if you want to read something even more graphic, read uh, Ezekiel 16. Read that whole chapter, and, it, and it'll tell you word for word exactly what your and my hearts are like before God. James 4 puts it this way. He says, You adulterous people, do, not think, uh, or do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We are an adulterous people. But she doesn't just lead them into sexual morality. She leads them into idolatry. And remember, the worship of idols is, is putting anything in the place that only God deserves. And quite frankly, guys, 
We're not out, for the most part, I, I, you may, I don't know, but we're not out peddling drugs. We're not out doing things like that. We're not out killing people. But you know what? We have our idols. And a lot of times our idols are good things. I love to spend time with my family. My family means the most to me. But when your family gets put in a place where God gets pushed aside, the family's not a good thing. God reserves one place for himself, and it is the place of preeminence. Let me give you another idol that many of us bow down to. Here's a quote by a guy named Colin Campbell. Look at what it says. See if you see your heart in this. Modern consumption is an activity which involves an apparent endless pursuit of want. And the wants themselves are inexhaustible. As one want is satisfied, its place is taken by one which is not. It is an endless change, a process that is ceaseless and unbroken. He's saying we run from one idol to the next just to kind of forget that we have this ache in our heart that only God can fill. Our true satisfaction only comes from Him. What's your satisfaction? What, what do you, would you say is your idol or idols? And immediately you're saying, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't have any idols. Well, let me ask the question another way. What gets your attention? What always gets your attention? What gets your attention early in the morning? You wake up, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Before you go to bed at night, what's the last thing that just kind of calms your heart, makes you feel good about yourself? Those can often be our idols. What do you run to when you get hurt? When you get frustrated and you say, I just deserve this. Do you reward yourself with food or uh, the next purchase? I'm going to buy that for me because I deserve that. Maybe you binge watch something. Maybe it is sex. Maybe it's gossip. I don't know. But we all have those idols. So look at what it says in verse 21. says, I gave her time to repent. Aren't those wonderful words? God was even in His love giving Jezebel time to repent. And that's what He does for us too. But the fornication that Jezebel was unwilling to be repentive of was her adulterous alliance with her pagan environment. And in the resulting judgment, God brought suffering and eventually death. And then look what it says in verse 23. And I will strike your children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. This principle of divine judgment that God is going to give each of us according to our deeds is throughout Scripture. It's not a popular, popular statement either. It's not a popular thing that we like to hear about judgment. A lot of people come to church and they go, like, that's all I hear is judgment. And our church, I would say, you know, there's a, there's a continuum we all live on. There's grace on this side, and over here is law or judgment. And as a whole, our church leans toward the grace side. But we can't forget this. This is just as important. In fact, we need to have the two and hold them in balance. But look at what this says in Scripture. Scripture over and over again talks about this divine judgment. Jeremiah 17 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man 
according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Matthew 16, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come, and he will reward each person according to what he has done. Paul in Romans 2 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But to those who are seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And you may be saying, well, John, we're talking about non-Christians there who are going to be judged. What about us Christians? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Your salvation, Jesus Christ, that foundation has been laid. But look what it says. Now if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. The day, and day is capitalized there because it's the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through smoke. Those three words are, uh, I guess it's more, it's five, six words, but only as through smoke, those jump out at me. Now, I haven't done the, the background theological work on that phrase, but in Hear me when I say this. I'm reading into what that means. So just give me a little liberty here. But in my mind, what that says is we're going to get to heaven and there's also going to be people there who their, their, their works have been revealed. What's it say? They will be saved, but only as through fire. You ever had somebody hang around you that's been hanging out by a fire? Smell like smoke, don't they? What a scary thought to think that I get to heaven, but I'm the guy that smells like smoke because all the things that I've done were not laid correctly. Oh, I'm a Christian. I have a a foundation of Jesus Christ, but all my works got burned up and I smell like smoke. And let me give you one more. Revelations 22. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus Himself is speaking there. We will be rewarded according to our deeds in this life. That's a sobering thought. Now listen, I want you to understand this. Works have been the basis for divine judgment forever. But that does not mean, though, that your salvation is by works. Salvation is by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. But we can't say, okay, I'm saved, I trusted in Christ, and who cares what I do, how I live? You can't have one without I me. Mean, you have to have both. If we're saved, we're going to be producing good works. I heard a guy years ago said something that stuck with me. He said, 
Faith is the root that produces the fruit. If I have a root, a foundation of Jesus Christ, good works will be produced. And the other thing is you have to understand, your deeds reveal your spiritual condition. We don't do good deeds to gain salvation, but because we have been given salvation, we do good deeds. Ephesians 2 tells us, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus, we are, have been brought to salvation in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we could just walk in them. So how do we avoid being judged? How do we avoid, like Jezebel here, undergoing suffering, death, this punishment? How do we deal with these distractions that constantly rise up in our lives? I was talking to uh, Aiden, one of our teenagers, before the service. He's the guy who's playing drums. and um, We were in the room over there, and I said, I said, Aiden, if I have to ask you, you've been unfaithful to your wife. What do you need to do to make it right? And it's this next point. He said, be faithful. That's it. Look at what he says here. He says, hold fast. And here's point three. Hold fast to Jesus because He is holding fast to you. Verse 24 says, do not hold to her teachings. Do not hold. Do not constantly recognize uh, the untruth. How do you recognize the truth? You've got to learn the truth, right? How do you recognize what's not true? Do you do it by studying what's false? You recognize untruth by studying what's true. You always study what's true. And when untruth comes up, you'll recognize it immediately. Why? Because you know the truth. But think about that again. Do not hold, or hold on to Jesus. Why? Because He is holding on to you. What does that do in your heart when you hear that? That Jesus is holding on to you. Does that stir up any affection? I need to hear that. I need to hear that Jesus is holding on to me. Because, man, I wandered around for so many different things. And I need to know that even though I may not be holding on to Jesus, Jesus is holding on to me. He remains faithful to me. He forbears me and my actions even when I dismiss Him. Hold fast. It's the idea of having a grip on. You could also say be married to, be committed to. And the word here indicates that this is going to be difficult. It's not some casual commitment. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. But what's the final outcome of holding fast? Verse 26, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Then he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, don't just listen. Hear it. Make it make a difference. Do you guys know that you are responsible for all truth that you hear? Let me give you an example. If I tell my son, my eight-year-old son, your job is today to take the trash out. 
And if tomorrow rolls around and the trash hasn't been taken out, he's been disobedient, right? But if I never told him that, and then the next day comes and I punish him for not taking out the trash, I'm an unjust father, right? But every bit of truth that you hear, and I'm not just talking about as a sermon, that's part of it, and when you go to a Bible study, when you open your own Bible and God is teaching you directly, it's just you and God in the room, and he teaches you something, that truth you're responsible for. That's a sobering thought, right? How many things have I learned that, man, I just dismiss? I get distracted. But to the one who obeys, the one who's faithful, the one who overcomes, Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. In my future earthly kingdom, you're going to have authority over the nations. And you're going to rule with a firm rule, with an iron scepter. But most importantly, look at verse 28. I will also give him the morning star. Now, who's the morning star? Morning star is Jesus. It says in Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This morning star is the idea, it's the star that outshines all the others. Jesus, as God incarnate, the Lord of the universe, is the bright and morning star. He's the most holy, the most powerful light we've ever seen. Jesus is the light of the world. What do you think to, when I, someone like me says, you're going to get the bright morning star? You get Christ. Got good news for you. You're going to get Jesus. You get Christ. Is your attitude like, I already got Christ. What else you got? I'm okay. I'm good. Meh. I got Jesus. Because a lot of times we're like that. Let me ask it another way. If Jesus was all you could have, would He be enough? If Jesus was all you could have, your husband, your wife, they're gone. It's just you and Jesus. Your kids, your mom, your dad, they're gone. You don't have your job. You don't have your health. You're barely holding on, but you got Jesus. Would that be enough? To have Christ is to have everything. Nothing, nothing, nothing else matters. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we are a wayward people. We wander and just distract our hearts and our minds from so many other things when you were right there in front of us. Father, stir up the Spirit in our hearts. May your Holy Spirit rule our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would stir up our affections for Christ. Help us to know that when we have Christ, we have everything. We pray now that as we go, you would help us to live a life that reflects that. That Christ would be reflected in our, our words, our actions, 
even our very motives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.